0: All right, well, let's make our way in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So 1 Corinthians 16 is where we're going to find ourselves as we prayerfully look to wrap up this letter of 1 Corinthians that we started back in February. So we're going to continue our journey uh, there. And as you guys make your way that direction, you remember by now that the Apostle Paul planted this church uh, back in February Acts chapter 18. And so as Paul's planted this church in Acts 18, he's now received multiple letters from the church in Corinth and from members of the church as well as church leadership about issues that were taking place there inside Corinth. And the first set of letters that he received was from a household of a lady named Chloe whom he had baptized there in Corinth. And so as she raised issues that were concerning to her within the church, Paul spent the first six chapters addressing these issues. And in particular, the the biggest issue that he addressed was one that he talks about in chapter 1 and then transitioned as to the why in chapter 2. The issue was divisiveness. The why was their carnality. They had become carnal as Christians. And so they believed, and yet they were following after their own flesh. Their flesh desired things and so rather than being led by the Spirit, they were led by their flesh and the result of that is they were a very selfish group of people. Now as we arrived in chapter 7 and now we're going to make our way to this final chapter, we see Paul addressing issues that were raised by church leadership concerning things like marriage and divorce and slavery and. Christian liberties and church conduct and all these different things that Paul talks about, leading him to discuss spiritual giftings. And then finally, in chapter 15, the resurrection of the dead. And so we spent two weeks talking about this chapter 15, where Paul really takes us to this point where we realize that our entire faith, everything we believe in, all the hope, all the trust that we place in Christ, it's all invalid if he's not raised from the dead. That all of this is hinging upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The proof that the payment was accepted was the resurrection. And so we see Paul uh, bringing us to this pinnacle and now he's going to wrap things up. And one one commentator, as I was reading this week about chapter 16, he said that as we uh, rise to the height of uh, this spiritual state in chapter 15, we then hit the thud of chapter 16. That Paul kind of lands the plane like a thud into the ground. Now, Uh, While that made me giggle, I don't think it's exactly accurate. Because what we're going to find as we study through chapter 16 is Paul's going to give them a very practical ending to this spiritual high he brought them to. And so the reality is for us as believers that uh, he uses the practical to make way for the spiritual. That these practical things have to be put in place so that the spiritual stuff can essentially happen. And and really, uh, the practical things are the application of the knowledge that Paul has given them, which is, by the way, the definition of wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge applied. And my favorite example of that is um, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. But wisdom is knowing that it does not belong in a fruit salad. And so we know that, that, that tomato is a fruit, but it's wisdom if I apply that and go, that doesn't belong there. And so we desire to be people that are wise, to know how to apply this knowledge that we're given. And so as chapter 16 comes to us and we wrap this book up, Paul is going to first address giving offerings. And you might wonder, why did Paul save this particular topic for the end? It might have been that he was answering questions in the order that he was asked, or he knew that if he would have put giving and offerings in the middle, y'all wouldn't have finished reading the book. We'd be like, yep, yeah, I'm done. I'm out. So Paul waits to the end he addresses uh, giving here at the end. And in fact, in this chapter, we're going to see in verses 1-4, through 4, he's going to give them instructions on giving. And at verses 5-12, through 12, he's going to talk about his travel plans. And then lastly, with the last uh, nine verses, he's going to give final exhortations or strong encouragement to the church in Corinth. So with that, let's make our way to chapter 16, verse 1. We'll read these first four verses. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also, that on the first day of the week let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, verse 3, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But verse 4, if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. And so what Paul is talking about here is collecting an offering. And to put this in its proper context, the offering is to go to the church in Jerusalem in this spot. And the reason for that is, at this current time, there's a great famine in the greater Judean area. And so all around the area surrounding Jerusalem, there's a famine in the land. And so the church in Jerusalem is struggling mightily. But it's not struggling in Corinth or in Galatia, all these regions. They're doing quite well. They're prospering. And so what Paul's encouraging them to do is that out of your abundance, I'm going to have you on the first day of the week. Why the first day of the week? Well, that was Sunday, of course, and that was the day they met for church. And so he's saying, look, I want you to pass the plate for the church in uh, Jerusalem. And so he's giving them this instruction on taking up a special offering for the church in Jerusalem that Paul and perhaps someone from the church in Corinth will deliver to James and the other church leaders back at the founding church in Jerusalem. Now all this brings up the topic of tithing and offerings. And the good news um, is if you come here that we don't talk about giving or any particular topic unless it comes up in scripture. And so here we've got an opportunity to address this and have greater understanding. But if this makes you uncomfortable, you really should have read ahead. There you go. That's on you. Now, you don't have to worry about this again until the topic comes up again in Scripture. So now there you've had your warning. You know when it's coming. But to give us a proper understanding, it's good to know that in the Mosaic Law, there are listed there requirements or prescriptions for, first of all, something called tithing. And the word to tithe just means to give a tenth, And so throughout the law of Moses, you see requirements given by God to the nation of Israel for them to come and bring a tenth of their grain, a tenth of their flock. Uh, they were to give a tithe of essentially their income. Now outside of that, there are other mentions of the word Offerings. These are considered free will offerings. And so, if the Spirit moved upon them and they felt like just giving to the Lord a peace offering that they would actually share with Him, they had that opportunity to come to the tabernacle or the temple and to give a free will offering. And so, in the Mosaic law, you have both tithing and offering both combined together. And if you look at it just percentage wise, at the low end it was 10% of their income. And if you add in all the offerings, it could be as much as. 30% of their income might be given to the church or to the tabernacle as it was in the Mosaic Law. Now, breathe deep. Exhale. He just said 30%. Okay. It's good to remember that we, as New Testament believers, no longer live under the law. So we are now free to live In Christ, which leads many to say, Look, I'm not living under the law, so therefore all these things in the law, they no longer apply to me as a mandate, in which case they would be correct. At no point in time in the New Testament is giving mandated. However, however, there's always a however, if you go with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, speaking of giving, he says, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that that they may glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And so Jesus is talking about those hypocrites who would go to the area where they would give at the temple and they had these big things that looked like brass trumpets almost that they would place the offering into. And so as they would put the offering in, they would throw it at that thing. I mean, make it rain down in there so that people would hear the jingle jangle and go, wow, listen to how much they gave. Jesus is saying to them, don't do it like that because those people just got their reward. They wanted to be recognized. They were. There's not going to be an additional reward for them. But I bring that verse up because uh, notice with me here at the beginning, he says, Uh, Not if you do a charitable deed, but when you do a charitable deed. And so the giving uh, piece of this is actually implied. He's assuming to the reader that we are giving. So he continues, if we go to Matthew chapter 23, he's addressing now in this section, again, these Pharisees that want to come up and criticize him. And in Matthew 23, 23, he says this, uh, Woe to you. By the way, if he says woe to you, it's not like a hold on, stop, look out, Uh, this is bad news, W-O-E, this is woe, look out, not good for you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. That doesn't sound great. So here he's addressing these Pharisees or hypocrites who wanted to be so exact with their giving that they would literally take their spices from the spice cabinet and measure it out to make sure they didn't give God too much. Don't want to give Him too much, but don't want to give Him too little and be in trouble either. And what Jesus is saying is you completely missed the point because you spent so much time measuring these things out that you forgot about justice and mercy and faith. You've left out the most important things. He doesn't give them a free pass not to do these things. He just makes the comment that these matters are weightier in the law that you actually care for people. Because the problem with all this is not how much they give; it's actually their heart position. If you were to go with me, I didn't put this in the notes, but you guys will remember the story from Sunday school: the the giving of the widow's mites from Mark chapter twelve, where the widow gave her last two mites out of her. Lack she actually gave more than what she would seemingly have to give. And in Mark chapter twelve, verse forty one, Jesus sat opposite the treasury. So he's sitting in this area where people would give at the temple in Jerusalem, and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. And so Jesus, before the widow were to give her amount, he's sitting there. But did you catch here in chapter twelve verse forty one of Mark what he was doing? He saw how the people put the money in. He wasn't sitting there to look at how much they gave. He was watching how they went about it. That was the most important piece. By the way, this is the most important piece to God. It's not how much. It's a matter of our heart position. How do we give? Why? Well, Mark or Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to go back there, verse 21. Jesus makes it very clear. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What he knows about us is that our heart is directly connected to our wallet. It's connected to the pocketbook. And so what we spend our money on, those are the things that we care an awful lot about. And Jesus wants us to be in love with him, to have a relationship with him. And so it's not about the dollar amount, it's about a heart issue, a heart position, a connection with him. So if we... Continue. What does God have to say about tithes then? Back to the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 3. Here's what the Lord is going to speak through the pen of Malachi to a group of people who had struggled to give to the Lord. In fact, they just quit doing it altogether. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings is what the Lord replies. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed Me, even this whole nation. Here's His encouragement in verse 10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in My house. Why is the Lord pressing on them? Because the people who are serving them in the house of God, they all had to go get jobs because they weren't supporting them. They weren't supporting the temple, the tabernacle. And so he's telling them, look, bring food to my house so that the servants can eat. That's what he's encouraging them to do. But notice with me this next line. And try me now in this. The only time you see that phrase in Scripture. Try me. God is encouraging us to test him, to put him to the test in this. And see if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it. This is the Lord giving a strong encouragement for us to actually test Him. Try Him out in this way. Trust Him in this manner and see if God can't give you more than you can even imagine. Now, this is not a health and wealth, prosperity gospel. I want to be very clear about that. That the Lord's promise is for a blessing. And a blessing can come in a multitude of ways. But what I know is my Scripture says I can test my Father on this. And what I have found is that He will provide over and over again. And so, where does that leave us? Oh, excuse me. I'll go to what Jesus had to say as well. Luke chapter 6. Jesus speaking on this topic. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will put it into your bosom for the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus' promise is given. It's going to be given. Not just given, but a good measure, pressed down, shaken together. He's going to dump it on your lap, on your shirt, just pour it out on top of you. It's going to be awesome. This is His promise to us. And so the encouragement for us to be generous because He knows it's connected to our heart. Now, this might lead some to ask, uh, why then, if this is so important, do we have a very nondescript boxes located in the back of the church? instead of passing around a plate. Which, by the way, if you've ever experienced the plate passing, uh, as Paul just mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 16, it's definitely something that is biblical. And the reality for churches is, um, if we did that, uh, we would collect about 30% more tithes than what we do today. And yet we do not do that. And the reason for that, uh, at least from my spot, is uh, every time I sat in a service and saw the plate get passed, I gave not out of a free will, but because I was compelled. I felt bad about the guy who dropped money in the uh, plate and then I was trying to figure out how much change I was going to make out of it. You know, those are the things that are being processed in our mind. And so it was a matter of being compelled. And so what happens is in that mindset, it becomes legalism. We're giving because we're we're feeling compelled to give. And and here's what the law says. The law says, do this and you'll live. And so oftentimes we'll do things because we think we're going to gain favor. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to live. And yet the liberty that we have in Christ doesn't say do this and live. Liberty says, live this and you'll do. It will become an, an outpouring of the abundance that we've been given as we are thankful for the love that Jesus has given to us. It's a natural outpouring. It's actually a form of worship. And so the reality is, I don't talk about money. One, because I don't like to. But two, uh, because it's, it's only when it comes up in Scripture. And the other piece is, uh, we don't uh, beg you and, and do fundraisers. It drives me crazy to see people on TV or to go to places where it's, it's beaten about people's heads. The sheep are being beaten. Why? Because we got a new building campaign. we got the big thermometer here, right? And we're, we're seeing ticks go up on the thermometer until we reach the goal. And so you got to give or God can't do a mighty work. Well, nothing is impossible for God. He doesn't need us to give for Him to be able to provide, and He certainly doesn't need a thermometer to keep track. And so, not to mention the fact that if we were going to do a building campaign, I wouldn't do a thermometer. I'd do that cool a Yodler thing from the prices, Right, you know that you lay, lay lay until he goes up. Like, that's what I'm going to... No, we're not going to do that. But if we did, that's how it would go. It would be awesome. But all that to say, here's the reality. Um, God doesn't need a fundraiser. He really doesn't. Psalm 24.1 says, the earth and the fullness thereof is His. And so oftentimes as a church, we're able to make decisions to know that if the Lord wants us to do something or not do something, He can use our finances as a way to prove that out. If he didn't provide the funds to do it, we don't do it. We need new front doors. The Lord provides funds. We'll put new front doors on this bad boy. And until then, we're not going to do those kind of things. And so it becomes a way that the church can actually be directed by waiting on the will of God to do it in his timing. Now, uh, that being said, as our finances go, what we do to be a good example, and I probably don't mention this enough, is the first 10% of everything we receive, we turn back around and we give it to other uh, organizations and other missions. And so the missions and the organizations that are out on the board out there or on our website, we give to them the first 10% we receive. We want to be good stewards, just like uh, I want to encourage you guys as well. Now, all that to say, uh, Paul gives this instruction to the church in Corinth, and yet they struggle with it. And so this is why in chapter or in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul's now writing to them and they've struggled with giving. And so he says to them in verse 6, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes where? In his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so what he's encouraging the church in Corinth is that as you give God is concerned about your heart position and so he wants you to give from a cheerful heart. The word in the Greek is actually the word hilarious. So what God wants us to do is, as we go to put money in the box, or as we go to the website and we hit the give button, wherever you decide to give from, He wants us to be able, at least in our heart, to do the old uh, Rick Flair WCW days. Woo! I mean, why? Because God is so good. I'm not encouraging you to actually woo when you go, but I mean, in your mind, you can do the woo. I mean, it puts a smile on your face as we get to give to the Lord. Why? Because He. He allows me to keep 90%. That's why. I mean, it's all His. And so I'm thankful that He lets me keep 90 He loves a hilarious giver. He wants us to be able to give from that heart position, but it all ultimately boils down to a matter for us of trust. Do I trust Him enough to be able to, to give in that kind of a way? And so for me, for a, a, lar- a large period of my life, till I really came to Christ in my mid-30s, I struggled mightily with this. In fact, uh, the plate would be passed and I would despise it. Uh, giving time would be talked about, or the pastor would give up and give a big spiel and, and it, it rubbed me the wrong way every time. And then I got to a spot where I was broken and I and I truly hit my knees and surrendered and I began to give in this way. And what I realized is this is actually an act of worship. This is a form of very personal, very enjoyable Worship for me. And so I can bring this up to you and encourage you in this way because this is one of the most intimate forms of worship that I have with my Heavenly Father. And as we were in Farmington and and I'm finally now worshiping Him in this way, I own my own small business. And what I didn't realize is sometimes when you own your own business, um, you get a paycheck and sometimes you do not get a paycheck. And so as I'm coming to Him and I'm able to, to finally worship in this way and it's joyful for me to give, uh, we hit a, a hard patch of several months in our business where uh, there was no paycheck. And I don't know if any of you are math geniuses or not, but um, 10% of zero is zero. There was no way that I could even write the check because we didn't have anything coming in. And so at that point in time, the worship was taken away. The joy was taken away. And I went from uh, disdaining this, hating this, to actually thoroughly missing it. And so after those few months of famine had passed and we were able to give again, man, this is something that I never take for granted, that I get the opportunity to hilariously give to him, to actually show him, look, I trust you, Lord, with my finances. I believe in you. All right, all that said, until next time, we'll pick that up. Let's go to verse 5. Paul is going to continue with his travel plans now. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. Thank you, Paul. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a little while if the Lord permits. And so Paul is now sharing with them his travel plans, but as he shares his itinerary, notice with me in verse 7, he he makes this statement at the end, if the Lord permits. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And in all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. And so the encouragement here that we take from Paul who is trusting in the Lord with his schedule is that we can make schedules and we can make plans, but it is to trust Him enough that He might just maybe divinely interrupt some of those all-important schedules that we make. And this is a spot, too, that we, we cram so much in in our Western calendars. I mean, we hardly have any time for the Lord to divinely interrupt. And even if He does divinely interrupt, we often will answer Him like the guy in the FedEx commercial in the early 2000s. I don't know if you remember this commercial... All my references, by the way, stop at 2010 because I quit watching TV. So if you ever wonder, like, why are all his references from the 90s and the two? It's because I stopped. So in the early 2000s, this FedEx commercial, people would walk by this guy's office and go to ask him a question, and he would reply with, busy! They go, hey, Bob, can you busy? Busy bee, worky, worky. So often, this is how we respond to the Lord. Busy! Can you do that? Oh, I'm sorry, busy. Busy, got so much work to do. here. I'm even doing Jesus' work. I'm too busy for a divine interruption. And so the encouragement here is that we can map out our itinerary. We can map out what we want to do, but to trust the Lord even in the middle of the interruption. Now, verse 8. I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many, Adversaries. And so Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians from the church in Ephesus. And as he's writing the letter to them, he says, Look, I'm going to stay here for a while. This is a spot he spent three years in Ephesus. But he says, I'm going to stay here. And yet, did you notice that with me? For there is a great door, but there are also many adversaries. Paul says, I'm going to continue to minister here because it's getting really, really hard. And can you imagine? I mean, Paul's in this spot where people are coming up against him. And and our intuition, at least my gut, anytime things get really hard, is maybe the Lord's not in this. Maybe it's time for me to check out. It's time to just hit the eject button. I am out of here. See you later. Paul wrote to us in the last chapter, he referred to the beasts in Ephesus. That in Ephesus, there were so many people coming against him. They were like great spiritual Warfare, riots were breaking out. And Paul, seeing all this happen, he goes, man, there's a great ministry here. Great and effective because there's so many adversaries coming up against us. And if you consider the olive, when we go to Israel here in 2024, we're going to have the opportunity to go to see actual olive presses. But they take the olive and they place it in these uh, these presses that look like this picture on the screen. And as the olives are placed there, they then grind them down. They're first crushed. And as they're crushed, the first time, uh, oil comes out. And then they take uh, the leftover olive and, and all the pulp, and they put it in the press again for the second time. And they get even more oil out. And then they take those leftover remains, and they put it in the press again. And you know what? They get even more oil out a third time. Three pressings of an olive. And then the best part is they scrape off all the leftovers And they throw it on the fire and they actually use it to burn. Absolutely nothing is wasted when the olive is crushed. Now, oil in the Old Testament, olive oil in particular, is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. And so many times for us to have the Spirit actually come out, we have to first be crushed. You guys don't have to raise your hands, but who in here loves to be crushed? Yeah, that's what I thought. And yet, it's in the crushing that the oil comes out. And when we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, the word Gethsemane in the Greek means olive press, what happens is three times he goes to the Lord in prayer, and three times he is pressed, he is crushed. It it feels like it's all going to end, and yet what we know about our Savior is nothing was wasted. And the same is true for us. As we're pressed, as we're crushed, as the oil is being squeezed out of us, it's important to note that he is wasting absolutely nothing. Very eternal implications to everything that we get the opportunity to experience. And so a little bit of encouragement inside this as Paul is having great adversaries come up against him. Verse 10, If Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord, as I also do. Therefore let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I am awaiting for him with our brethren. And so here Paul mentions sending Timothy, but he's he wants to tell him, look, I don't want Timothy to be afraid. You know why he says this about Timothy? Because he was often afraid. He had fear. He had anxiety. We see this in letters as Paul writes over and over again to Timothy about his anxiety. A little bit of wine for your stomach will settle that anxiousness you've got going on, Timothy, your, your continual infirmities. When we arrive in second Timothy chapter one, Paul's final letter to his protege, 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 7, he encourages him by saying, "For God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Timothy, this is the spirit God has put in you. And so often we think because of the spirit of fear or anxiety, we can't do great things for the Lord. And yet if you read a little more into Timothy's story in second and excuse me in Philippians chapter 2, As Paul is writing to the Philippian church about Timothy, he says, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. But skip down to verse 22. But you know his proven character, speaking of Timothy, that as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. You see, as Timothy struggled with fear and anxiety, what he had was a tremendous character. You know Timothy's character. You know his heart. Paul knew the heart of Timothy. And so many times we don't serve the Lord because we're worried about our ability. We're worried about our capabilities. And guess what? Um, God is not at all concerned about your abilities. He is exceedingly concerned about your character. I want to encourage you in that. That as we develop our character in Christ Jesus, that is the thing he is most concerned about. About He can work on abilities. He can give you all kinds of things to make up for your shortcomings and your uh, lack of ability. But what he desires for us is an extremely valuable character like what Paul saw in Timothy. Now verse 12 as we continue. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. And so here we see Paul sends a note to Apollos. Apollos gives him the busy answer and does not come. But here's the thing that I took from this. Uh, Paul wasn't discouraged by that. That didn't bug Paul, which is a huge step in maturity for him. You might remember back in Acts chapter 15 when he and Barnabas were traveling all around. And on their first missionary journey, they took a guy named John Mark, who uh, he weaned out halfway through the ministry, halfway through the missionary journey. He couldn't take it anymore, and he left. And so in Acts 15, they're getting ready to go out on their second missionary journey. And Barnabas wants to take this guy, this little John Mark, his nephew. And Paul says, absolutely not. He's a quitter. I'm not taking him. And these two have such an argument that Barnabas and John Mark, they go south and Paul and Silas go north. He allowed division to happen because he was not willing to be flexible. He wasn't willing to wait on God in his timing. And so now we see Paul later in his career. I'm encouraged by his maturity for him to say, Look, Apollo said the time didn't work. It's going to work for him whenever it's convenient. I'm not going to worry about it. That's in the Lord's hands. Now, verse 13 here, we get four exhortations in this one verse. Paul says, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, and be strong. And so, packed into this little verse, we have these four uh, exhortations. First of all, watch. Who are we watching for? Well, the first uh, point I wanted to make, we're watching for perhaps the enemy. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking he- whom he may devour. That sounds worthy of us watching out for a lion that wants to eat us, doesn't it? And so he's encouraging, Peter's encouraging the church to watch out for the enemy. Keep yourself guarded. Protect your mind and your heart because the enemy wants to devour you. Now the other place that we can see to watch, we watch out for the lion who wants to eat us, but we also have another lion to look out for, the lion of the tribe of Judah. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6 says, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And so as we protect our minds and our hearts from the enemy who wants to devour us, we're also encouraged to watch out for the lion of the tribe of Judah who's not going to leave us here in this spot. He's going to come back for us. He's going to rescue us. And so we're encouraged to be on the lookout for Him. Now the second exhortation He gives is stand fast. In the faith. And so they're encouraged to watch and then they're encouraged to stand fast. We've got this beautiful tree over here on the corner of the property. I believe it's an oak tree. Hopefully it is. Because if not, my example's ruined. So those of you who love trees, if that's not an oak tree, pretend like it is. This beautiful tree over here on the corner, but it started as a, as a seed. It just started as a, as a small seed that when it went into the ground, it absolutely refused to give up. It refused to give up ground. And so the result is this this beautiful oak. And so too, Paul's encouraging them to do not give up ground, to stand fast. What he writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love. That we're to be rooted and grounded in Christ Jesus, to stand fast in this spot. And as you come into contact with people who have been super successful or you watch documentaries, I, I, I'm amazed as I see these stories, whether it's a professional athlete or whether it's a professional a business person who's been super successful, all these stories have one common thing, and that is when things got hard, they still finished the work. They finished the work. Finishing was actually the key. It didn't mean there weren't bumps in the road. They didn't skid and slide around, but they finished the work. So, as we arrive in John chapter 17, Jesus is getting ready to be put on trial and then eventually to be crucified. But in John 17, verse 4, that very night, he is praying now to God the Father, and he says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. If Jesus doesn't finish the work, you understand none of us are sitting here. If he doesn't wrap this thing up, if he stops halfway through because it got too hard, but instead he stood fast, he finished the work. And so as a result, you and I have an opportunity for eternal life. So thank God that he finished the work the Father had for him to do. Paul's encouraging them. Thirdly, he says after stand fast to be brave. If any of you uh, love your King James a translation and you look at that, uh, since that's the language Jesus spoke in, is the original King James. That's a little joke. Okay, I'm the only person who grew up Baptist. All right, so in the King James Version, it actually says, uh, Quit ye like men, which I love that phrase. I wish that was in here. You can imagine, I, I feel like William Wallace himself, with his Scottish accent. Sorry for my bad Scottish accent, Allison. He would get out there and say, quit ye like men! What the word quit means, act. And so it's act like men. I mean, come on. Paul's saying, be brave. Quit ye like men. Why? Because we get scared sometimes. But in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1, we read this on Wednesday night. He said, Solomon writes, the wicked flee when no one pursues. But the righteous are bold as a lion. I mean, think about that. The, the wicked, they run away even when nobody's chasing them. But for the righteous, we can be bold as a lion. What well, you guys know, as Isaiah would say, that um, our righteousness is as of filthy rags. And so none of us actually have any righteousness to offer. But in Isaiah 60, we're told that we will receive through the king of kings a robe of righteousness. And so the righteousness we receive is from King Jesus when He gives me a robe that I don't deserve. And when I put that on, I can now stand to be brave, to quit ye like men, like a lion. That's a tremendous promise from Him. Lastly, He says, be strong. So the final encouragement here is to be strong. And I was thinking about this, and Joshua came to mind, who was filling in for Moses after he passed off the scene. I mean, the greatest man in the history of Israel up to this point is Moses. And Joshua's got to fill those shoes. And in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, the Lord says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so Paul here is encouraging them, like Joshua was encouraged, to be strong, to not be dismayed, because the Lord is actually there with them. And so as we lead, the encouragement there is to be strong. And as we lead, I found myself this week in Job chapter 1. Often when we read Job, we only think about the hardships. But in chapter 1, verse 5, And so it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early, in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all for Job said it may have been my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts thus Job did it regularly Job in this spot was standing strong on behalf of his family what he would do on behalf of his family is to get up early and he would actually make regular sacrifices for his kids and this is an encouragement to moms and dads, to grandmas and grandpas out there, that as you consider your families, uh, be willing to step in and sacrifice for them. It may look like a sacrifice of time, effort, energy, but the encouragement there is to sacrifice for them as we stand strong because lots of times it feels like we're making no headway whatsoever. And so in strength and encourage, the Lord is encouraging us to continue to make sacrifices, to continue to be strong and be courageous. Now, how is any of this possible? Here you have it, verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. So oftentimes, especially as men, when we're called on to lead, we bring out the big guns. We start to get heavy-handed with it. We're going to do as I say because I said so. That's usually my answer. Um, but the encouragement here is we... Uh, lay down the law, if you want to call it that, but we actually are strong for our families to do it in love. And and all this is impossible to do in love if it's not through the love of Christ. As we try to do it in our own strength, we are going to fail every single time. If it's not Christ living in us and through us, we cannot do any of these things in our flesh, not continually. And so we continue. Verse 15 I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaea, that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. And so here he's talking about the house of Stephanus. Apparently, they were the first to come to Christ when he arrived there in Corinth. He calls them the first fruits of Achaea. This is this whole region where Paul is ministering to there in Corinth. And we're told that they've devoted themselves to the ministry. And if you, again, have your King James Version, the word devoted is actually addicted there. And I love that because they were addicted to ministering to people. Isn't that a beautiful way to look at it? But here for Stephanus, as he stepped out in faith, notice with me, as he stepped out, so did his household. It wasn't just Stephanus that received Jesus. It was his household, and he loved ministry. He was devoted to it. Which, as we're talking about leading our families well, I wanted to mention um, our kids and our families and our grandkids are going to love what we love. As a kid growing up, we had the Terre Haute station, WTHI, and so every Sunday when I got home from church, we had the Colts on TV. And the Colts in that day, they were they were often terrible. Jack Trudeau, Jeff George, what a disaster! And finally. Finally, we draft number 18, Peyton Manning, number one. And then for more than a decade, I mean, we're tremendous. We've got a, a great run. And so I grew up loving the Colts. Now, as of late, the Colts are terrible. But if you ask the kids in my house what football team we love, you know what they say? We love the Colts. They didn't have any experience in the Colts actually being good or winning a Super Bowl. But you know why they love them? Because I love them. And so, Reminds me when they do things or they act out in certain ways, what what do I actually love in my household? What am I giving them to, to love? Because they're gonna love the things that we love, you understand? They're gonna they're gonna be passionate about the things that we're passionate about. And so as we devote ourselves to Jesus, as we love him, as we go hard for him, so too the promises here will our families and our households. Now verse 17. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus, and Achaicus. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. And for they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. And so the Apostle Paul, you might remember as a career, he was a tent maker. He, He made tents for a living. And so when he arrived in Corinth, he built tents, and he was in contact with other tent builders, including Aquila and Priscilla, who apparently came to know Jesus as their Savior, and then they packed up and they moved with Paul to Ephesus. They're with him now, and later we'll see they go with him to Rome. They actually plant a church in Rome. And so what I love about this is Aquila and Priscilla, who are rooted in that community, they were willing to be flexible as the Lord led. And Pastor Chuck would always say, uh, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. So it's an encouragement here for us to be flexible as the Lord leads. Now, Paul in verse 20 says, All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And I feel like culturally the holy kiss has maybe taken a hiatus from where we're at in this Western culture. Not a lot of holy kissing. So I'm going to encourage you for the holy handshake or the holy side hug, or if you're more comfortable, the holy front on, but either way, uh, he is encouraging them to greet one another. And this, by the way, is the same Apostle Paul who, for 16 chapters, has been sharing really, really hard things with them. But he's sharing hard things with them, and yet what he's saying is, But I love you. Th- these, th- these things that he's sharing, he's saying, I-, I love you guys, and this place that he's sharing with them in the church at large, the ecclesia, this should be a spot where we can share hard truths, where we can share things that need to be said. We can talk about things honestly and openly, but we can only do that if we're in a relationship to the point where we can exchange a holy kiss, or again, holy handshake, holy hug. We don't have to be smoochy smoochy. The idea is coming into relationship with one another. That's the point where hard things can be shared. Now verse 21, <clears throat> the salutation this salutation with my own hand, Paul's. And so oftentimes as we read letters from Paul, he will have someone else transcribing his words, but in this spot this was so personal to him, even though he struggled with eyesight and his handwriting was likely bad, he wanted them to know I wrote this. And so in big letters he signed him, Paul, so they knew where it came from. Verse twenty two. If anyone does not love uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. And so here in this spot, Paul gives a little uh, play on words, but he says, If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. That seems pretty harsh when you consider it. But when you think about what Paul's communicating, in light of this entire letter where he's sharing the very love of Christ, the, the Jesus who allowed Himself to be nailed on the cross and then raised from the dead, to not turn to Him, what you're essentially doing is you're cursing yourself. That's if we turn to John chapter 3. We get to chapter 3 and of course John 3.16. We remember from Sunday school that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But we often don't continue in verse 17. For God did not send His son, into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and the men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. And so for the world at large, when Paul says, if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus, be condemned, it's The reality is they condemned themselves because men and women loved darkness. And so the condemnation doesn't come from Jesus. We took care of that on our own. God never intentionally wants to send anyone to hell. He has given us more and more opportunities to receive him. But because he's a gentleman, he wants us to make a decision for ourselves. And so Paul says, if you don't believe, then you're already accursed. And the reality is if we don't call on the name of Jesus, I'd ask you this, if you don't call on Jesus' name, whose name are you going to call on when things get difficult? What are you going to call on? You? I mean, that's who I'm most likely to call on, and I'm the least reliable person I know. I know me through and through. I know I can't be trusted. And so who in the world are you going to call on if not calling upon the name of the Lord? But for us... As believers, as we know we can call upon the name of the Lord, O Lord, come, the word is Maranatha. As we call out Maranatha, O Lord, come, here's the promise. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Because He has torn the veil, we now have full access to the throne of God. I mean, imagine that. Because of the work Jesus did, you and I can go boldly into our Father's throne room and crawl up on His lap and say, Dad, this is what's going on. This is what I need help with. Please, oh Lord, come in this situation. And so a beautiful promise for those who believe. Now, as we wrap up, verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you and be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so as Paul concludes his letter, he says, I love you guys. I really love you. And no doubt there's some that are reading this that go, Paul, if you loved us so much, why would you point out all our flaws? Why did you spend 16 chapters pointing out all the things that were jacked up in our relationships and with our Lord and with each other? And the reality is Paul spent all this time in this letter because he loved them. But to not share hard things with them, it would have actually been easier for the Apostle Paul to do that. It would have been way easier for him to just go, You guys are good, we're good, everybody's good. But it's way harder to address the difficult things. Proverbs chapter 27 says this, verse 5, Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. That it is a good thing to have an open rebuke. It's better than love that just wants to run away and hide. And so Paul's saying, look, I love you enough that even if this hurts, Even if you're offended, I'm going to take my chances with you because I love you so darn much. Proverbs 27 verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A faithful friend would tell you something hard, even when they know you might push back on them a little bit. Now, as Paul is saying these hard things, remember he's saying, I'm also coming to you. I'm going to spend time with you. Why is he stating that? Because if we're going to tell somebody something hard, we also must be willing to be involved. And that's usually where the rubber meets the road. We don't want to say something hard because we're worried how they're going to receive it. And we're also worried, I might have to get dirty in the middle of this situation. Last place in Scripture for this morning, I promise. John chapter 13. Jesus there on the final evening he spent with the disciples. In verse 4, He rose up from supper and he laid aside his garments. and he took a towel and girded himself. And after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel in which he was girded. It's one of his last acts that he would do with all the disciples gathered as he washed their feet. Nobody probably shared more hard things with those guys than Jesus. He gave them all kind of hard stuff. He challenged them in all sorts of ways. And yet he could do that because he was willing to wash their feet. He was willing to really get down and get his hands dirty. Warren Wearsby famously said that truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. And so many times we fall in one camp or the other when it comes to sharing hard things. That on the one side, we want to just be lovey, lovey, Love you, love you, love you, love you, love you. I love you. But we never want to say anything hard. And so the reality for us in church is it's hypocrisy. Nobody's going to grow from that. But the other side of things is we go all truth. And we go great guns. I mean, we go right down the middle. This is the truth. Accept it or burn in hell. And you know what? That's brutality. And for the people hearing it, it feels brutal. And the funny thing about the person that always says they're just brutally honest you know what they don't usually like is when you're brutally honest. <laughs> they don't they don't care for that at all. And so the reality is, here's Jesus. He was able to be very honest, to give them the truth, but He did it in love. He was willing to get down and wash their feet. And so as we have the opportunity to speak into someone's life, uh, the question is, are you willing to get your hands dirty in the middle of that process? And so as Paul writes this letter, his hope is that it would be received in humility, and in repentance. So Father God, thank you so much for 1 Corinthians. Thank you, Lord, for our time here. Lord, may your words be received in humility, and if need be, in repentance. Lord, We want to turn away from the things we're doing that are harmful, and we want to turn towards you, Lord Jesus. We are so excited about your coming. Oh, Lord, come. Maranatha, we're so overjoyed with that. And yet, for this time, we have the opportunity to speak into people's lives, to be a part, not of the problem, but of the solution. And so, Lord, help us to be able to take this word and apply it in a very real way, but to be able to apply it in love today. So we lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen.